Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 217 for October 8th, 2009, The Broken Browser Model. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMeeting, the affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash security now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Security Now. I'm Alex Lindsay, sitting in for Leo. And, uh, and of course, we are here with the security guru in an undisclosed location in Southern California, <laughs> Steve Gibson. Hey, Alex. Hey, how you doing? Great. Great to be with you this week. And uh, uh, it's fun to have, the, for the first time ever in our history, When every time in the past when Leo was going to take a sabbatical or go on a cruise or something, we've... We've doubled up and recorded episodes in advance. Uh, this is the first time I've had a co-host or a different co-host than Leo. So well, I'm, I'm pretty excited uh, to be here. I'm, I'm excited to uh, to give this a shot. It's a, it, you, you. Let me tell you, you look marvelous, marvelous. <laughs> well, of course, you and I know each other well. We've we've sat on the sets of various of Leo's shows through the years. Um, uh, I guess in both in Vancouver and in, and in Toronto. So. Yeah. Uh, so that works. No, absolutely. And what, what do we have? What do we have on the docket for today? Well, a really interesting thing uh, has sort of been on my mind. I, I mentioned it briefly last week. Um, a a hacker who goes by the acronym or well, not the acronym, the, the moniker of Moxie Marlin Spike um, gave a presentation, which I think he somewhat erroneously titled New Tricks for Defeating SSL in Practice. Um, this, this was at the, the black hat conference in DC and ever since I ran across it, it's sort of just been haunting me and I've been wanting to share with security now listeners what it was that he presented because there is sort of within this with, if you sort of take some of the window dressing off, there really is a fundamental problem with the way we're doing security through internet browsers. And so I would rename this, and in fact, this is the title of today's episode, the the broken browser model, because the way security is sort of brought to play creates some vulnerabilities. And so I want to go into it in detail. It, It builds on, as many of our episodes do, many of the things we've laid down before, which I'll review briefly to sort of create a foundation but then I'm going to sort of take us through the way it's possible for for people who believe they're securely logging in, securely providing credit card numbers and and doing those things with with no vulnerabilities that is not taking advantage of of any defects or any problems, but actually just taking advantage of how the the browser model is fundamentally not really secure um, 
allows all that information to be captured by uh, a third party. So I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a good hour here. I, I really want to talk about that, and I really don't want to talk about that. I don't I don't, I don't know if I really I don't really want to know. I mean, I just kind of you know that that's something that I don't want to think about. I travel a lot, and it, this, this is the, this is the uh, the center of my of my of what I'm scared about when I'm traveling. So it's uh, so we'll get to that in just a second, and we've got of course news and errata to talk about but before we do that um we're going to jump into uh, thanking one of our sponsors uh, go to meeting and go to meeting of course uh, you i'm sure all of you have have heard about this but if you are uh, you know one of the problems that you have is that you want to uh you want to meet with people you want to you know have these face-to-face conversations and in today's uh environment it's very very difficult it's hard to you know, get the budget for that. It's hard to get the time for that. Uh, it, it can be driving, it can be flying, it can be hotels. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the, the average cost for one of these things, might, it might be $1,000 that you're going to spend on this. Uh, and all of this can really add up. And it's not just in money, it's in time. Uh, you don't need to do that. You know, one of the things that you can be, you can be trying is go to meeting. Uh, go to meeting, of course, is just $49 a month. And, and you can, uh, you know, it's easy to use. You can uh, go to use go to meeting with just a single click. Any people can see your desktop and you can show them what you're working on. They can actually interact with it themselves. Uh, of course, it includes voice over IP and phone conferencing, and it, you know it's secure. So it, it really is. The, uh, Citrix has been working on this for a long time, and uh, they have figured out a lot of the pieces that you don't want to know. Uh, they the you can whether you're doing sales presentations, product demos, uh, whether you're you know training sessions, collaborating on documents. All of these are the things that. Typically, you'd, you'd want to be going out and you know, getting a plane ticket and getting a hotel and trying to figure that stuff out. And you, in many, many, many of these cases, you can actually just use GoToMeeting. You can just sign up, uh, get people to um, you know, interact directly and do all the things that you would normally do in person uh, online. Now, you can get 30 days for free if you haven't tried it already. And uh, you know, the, the, the free trial is simply gotomeeting.com slash security now. So once again, go to meeting.com slash security. Now uh, you can, uh, you know, go up there, get 30 days for free, try it yourself, see if it, uh, see if it makes sense for you. So now early on, uh, early, back to our regular scheduled program, uh, we've got uh, <laughs> security news. Yeah. Um, there's a couple interesting things have happened uh, in the last week. First of all, uh, a sort of a run of the mill yeah, what we seem to be talking about constantly are buffer overruns. Right. Um, the Google Chrome browser has been updated to version 3.0.195.25. Hmm. Um, all prior versions are vulnerable to a, a problem that was found uh, apparently through examining the open source code, because, of course, Chrome is an open source browser, so the 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 code is available to people. There's a uh, it's called the D2A DTOA. It converts uh, strings to floating point. And so there's a an exploit that has been found that is been made public uh, for the Google Chrome browser. So I don't know how many of our listeners are active users of the browser. It's apparently it's currently rated fourth in popularity, but. That doesn't mean like it's got 25% of the market. Um, you know, the, the popularity of, of the top two browsers, IE and Firefox commands, you know, most of the browser market share. Um, and I'm not even sure who's number three, I guess, probably Safari. Thanks to Apple. Yeah. I think it's Safari is number three. Yeah. And so, you know, Chrome is, is an also ran, but, uh, for anybody who is using it, you know, it's funny when I, when I fire it up, in order to install the updates like this, 
I look at it and I think, wow, it really is pretty. I mean, it's just a, it's a pretty, especially under Windows, it's just a pretty looking browser. But, you know, I don't know. I just, there's nothing compelling about it for me. I'm well converted over to Firefox. And in fact, that sort of leads us into our other news. Um, there is an update for any BlackBerry users uh, who are using the BlackBerry software uh, 4.5 through 4.7. Uh, you may want to check to see whether um, uh, RIM has an update for you. They have fixed a defect that we're now going to talk about. We've actually talked about it about more than nine weeks ago, more than two months ago. A a problem with a null character occurring in a security certificate. The good news is that that the BlackBerry browsers are being updated now to fix that. The bad news is that just three days ago, this last Monday, a a fake PayPal certificate was posted on the Internet, which allows SSL connections, secure socket layer connections to be spoofed. That is like with various sorts of phishing attacks using this fraudulent certificate. So you can think you're paying through PayPal and you're really paying... You're really connecting to somebody else. Well, exactly. And in fact, this is this is this is what's disturbing about this is that this is more than two months old. My, uh, um, this is a defect in that the originally affected all Windows browsers. Microsoft still to this day, more than nine weeks after this went public, has not fixed this. Uh, the problem is still exists in their own crypto API library, which is a shared component of Windows that IE, Apple's Safari running on Windows and Chrome all use. So today, IE, Safari on Windows and Chrome are all vulnerable to this. What's interesting is that Firefox, both version, both 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 version chains of Firefox, the 3.0 and the 3.5, fixed it within a couple days. And there, there was also the problem, even in the Mac OS X originally, but, but, but Apple fixed it a couple weeks later. So this has long been fixed for Firefox under Windows and Safari under OS X. But even now, more than two months later, has is, is not been fixed for IE, Apple Safari under Windows and Chrome. And now we have... A, a this fake PayPal certificate that is being circulated on the internet that essentially, if it's used, you can actually establish an SSL connection to what looks like PayPal. We wow. talked about this a couple months ago to, to remind our listeners, the idea is that the way strings are stored in pretty much all modern operating systems is there, it's just a sequence of bytes that ends with a null byte. That is an, a, a, a zero byte. They're so-called null terminated strings. Um, strings historically have been stored in various different formats. Pascal was famous for storing the length of the string as the first byte, which was convenient for all kinds of reasons. The problem was that a byte can only be zero to 255. So, Pascal strings could never be longer than 255 characters. So that was sort of fixed by saying, wait a minute, we'll just allow a string to be any length, but terminate it with a null. Well, of course, that has had disastrous security 
consequences. It, that that whole null terminated string issue, while it's very convenient for programmers to sort of scan until you hit a null, that's largely responsible for all the buffer overrun problems we have today. Now, is that well? Is, is part of that giving the giving a hacker an idea of where of what to look for? With- well, it's it's more that the operating system uh, uh, will just read bytes until it hits a zero. And it will it'll do that blindly. So if you tell it to like copy one right. one string to somewhere else, it will copy as much as you give it until it hits a null character. So it, it so it creates this like all kinds of opportunities for exploitation. What's interesting about this particular null, it's called a null prefix vulnerability in certificates, is that you can you can create a certificate www.paypal.com null that is a zero and then anything else you want like um my uh machine dot secure dot net and so the certificate is actually for the secure dot net domain but and and certificate issuers will issue certificates um to the secure.net domain. And then if you embed a null between sort of your own machine name, www.paypal.com, the browsers, while they're parsing the name on the certificate, they stop at the first null, which, you know, is, is the way strings are processed in our modern operating systems. So it's not a surprise that they do this, but you absolutely don't want that behavior in this particular instance. Right. So, so anyway, so as, essentially, this this is a a bad problem. Microsoft has not responded, and as of three days ago, there there are this there there is this PayPal, this known fraudulent PayPal very spoofable certificate floating around the net. And of course, the big question is: Okay, we know about the PayPal cert. What other ones have been issued that we don't know about? Right. So essentially, the, the takeaway from this is at the moment, you cannot trust that as a Windows user cannot trust any Windows browser other than Firefox. The Firefox guys fixed this. They took responsibility away from, from the, the underlying Windows platform and fixed it themselves within days so now, this, so, yeah. so Apple could fix it, for instance, on Safari. They just they would need to, but right now they're relying too much on the on the Windows framework. Exactly, they're using there. There's a shared library called the Crypto API, where uh, that IE Safari on Windows and Chrome all just assume you know the underlying framework is 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 reliable. They're all using it, and as a consequence, today they're all vulnerable. And so you know. Apple did fix it in OS X immediately, right. but you know, haven't done so on, on Safari under Windows, pr- probably presuming that this is, you know, hey, this is not our fault. This is a Windows problem. The problem right. is that it makes all browsers except Firefox untrustworthy. I mean, f- completely untrustworthy for making secure connections until Microsoft finally fixes it, which, uh, you know, maybe they'll do so soon. I hope so. Yeah. Well, it seems it seems like it. I mean, it it really. Uh, wow, that's a that's a that's a huge bug. It seems like <laughs> it's, it's a huge I mean, problem. It's, like, it's, it's not like a little thing. Anytime you start talking about money, you know, we we get concerned. Yeah. Well, and and again, it's 
this is it, it's you know Microsoft has said oh our, our our engineers are looking at the problem and we're analyzing it and as soon as we have a uh, a resolution to it we'll issue you know a fix it's like guys fix it now and I mean right. I, I'm not at all happy that this PayPal certificate has gotten loose because there's no question people will be compromised by it we can hope though that this ups the pressure on Microsoft which they're, apparently they're not feeling sufficiently enough to address this but i mean this is a this is a real problem and it's difficult to understand how it's so difficult to fix it's a simple obvious i mean you know, anyone can explain it to someone else and go ooh you know that's not the way it should work let's fix that that's just it's just not a difficult thing for them to do interesting so um in other news well that that's basically all the security news we have for the week right i did have something that i forgot to tell our our li- our listeners last week which conveniently uh was october 1st mm-hmm. which was the release date of the third book in a trilogy that that this podcast has followed there's an author that we like michael mccullum who has a website sci-fi-az.com where he publishes um, a tremendous set of science fiction books which are also available in ebook all kinds of ebook formats mm-hmm. um i had some communication with him this week because i i i sent Email to him saying, "Oh shoot, I forgot to mention that um, in last week's security now." So I said, "I, you know, I wrote, didn't write it down, so it didn't get remembered when I when we were doing the podcast." So I said, "I'm writing it down this time. I will not forget again." And he said, "Well, actually, he said sales of the third book in the trilogy. This is the Gibraltar uh, trilogy. It starts with Gibraltar Earth, then Gibraltar Sun, and Gibraltar Stars." Um, so I just wanted to let our listeners know that for anyone who is waiting to hear that the third book in the trilogy has been published, it's now been out for a week. He did say that interestingly, ebook sales were really even stronger than paperback sales. He, he, he prints and publishes and binds his own paperbacks. I actually had the privilege of editing the, or I just, I should say proofreading the 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 final book before its publication and found you know just a handful of little typos here and there the kind of things that you know the person who writes it can never you know prove their own work because their their brain just scans across it and sees what they expect to see right. it takes somebody else to to look at it so i was able to to give him some help with that and then um leo and i have been long been fans of ebook readers you know of course we oh, yeah. buy any anything that happens Uh, And I had mentioned a few weeks ago that I was sort of excited about Sony's so-called pocket e-reader, which Mm -hmm. they were reputed to be coming out with at the beginning of the month because it had a, a, it had a five inch screen. And while I think that's on probably on the small side, the idea of, you know, something like an an e-book reader that you could literally put in your pocket, although, you know, people argue, wait a minute, you know, my, my iPhone has an e-reader in it and it's even Kindle compatible or Amazon compatible. So I, you know, I've got an ebook in my pocket. At the same time, you know, Sony uses the e-ink technology, which is the same thing that the Kindles use. So I was excited until I saw it because (laughs) in my, in my, yeah, in my imagination, a pocket ebook that had a five inch screen would be very much like the iPhone, you know, where it's, you know, looking at it, it would be all screen. And then maybe they'd have the UI sort of, you know, on the edges somewhere. So you could hold it and like click an edge mounted button or something, you know, and that, that I could see putting in your pocket. Well, 
having seen now the so-called, well, it's the model number PRS 300. It is at a very good price. It's, it's 199. So it's nice that we're seeing the prices of these come down. The problem is that it is very much like the same UI as the other, the, the, the other ebook readers so far. And like the other Sony's where you've got a bunch of controls down the right hand side of the, of the e-ink screen, and then a whole bunch of control surface below the screen. So in other words, you've got, you know, a smaller screen, but so much margin UI that it ends up being big again. And I don't know whose pocket it fits in, but, you know, not mine. Well, I, so, I find, I still find myself, every time I pick up any of these e-readers, I, I go, I want to go like this. And I just, the text doesn't move. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, I just, for me, I'm, I'm a Kindle lover and I'm, I'm a little, I, I, I do like the way the iPhones, you know, screen UI functions. And I think, you know, if some, if a, if a UI is going to use a touch screen, it's got to be really responsive. Yeah. Um, there's a, um, there, there's a company called Plastic Logic that is also yeah. in, in the game now with a touch screen based reader. I haven't seen it, haven't purchased one, you know, never, never, never had the opportunity to look at it. And it's got a, you know, large screen, um, but it's, it's got no controls because it uses the screen as the UI. And I'm like, uh, okay, I hope that works. I'm, I'm really not a fan, I think, of touching the screen. I like the idea of holding the, holding the book exactly the way the Amazon has finally done it. That, that is the Kindle does it where, You've got your hands on the button and with, you know, almost subconsciously, you just will the screen to change and, you know, a slight movement, a slight twitch of your hand causes that to happen instead of having to, you know, move my hand into the screen area. You know, that's, that's my reading area. I don't know that I want to, you know, be reaching in there in order to change the, the page. So I think the jury's out. Yeah, I, I I just like the fact that when you have touch screens, you just get a lot more. You get you get a smaller device that has more screen screen real estate, and I think that's what you know. That's that trade off, and I'm really happy with it. I mean, I find the biggest thing when I look at a Kindle is that there's just so much extra stuff around it, and I'm just used to at a device that just has a screen. A you know, really, yes, a really spare UI. Yeah, and in fact, I don't know if you've seen. I'm sure you have. They like some of the mockups of the of the We Dream of it uh, Apple iPad. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! There's one that just looks like this beautiful slate that is. I mean, it looks like nothing other than they took an iPhone and stretched it out, which of yeah. course is what what the guy did in Photoshop in order to make this mock-up. Right. But oh, it would just—it's lying there. You can just sort of imagine yourself flicking the the yeah. screen and the and the pages scroll. Yeah. And uh, you know, we've heard a lot about what Jobs is reputedly doing. I mean, like really, he's you know the noise he's making. Of course, he always makes a lot of noise, but. You know, this is going to fundamentally change the way print is handled. And it's like, okay, Steve, well, that's good. I hope you do. It's in color. (laughs) Oh, yes, 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 yes. Probably, you know, this is uh, this is becoming this weekend in uh, in 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 e-readers, which that's true, which I think would be a great show, by the way. (laughs) I think I think it's something that we should talk to Leo about. Uh, Yeah. Well, in fact, we have spent a lot of time on it because. Um, you know, we're readers, um, yeah. you know, audible is a sponsor, although, you know, of course, uh, eBooks are not audible, although a lot of the eBooks do have, uh, audio players built in. So you can, you can certainly use them with, with audible uh, well, I content. Think I think there's going to be some, I think there's some convergence there too. I think that we're going to end up, uh, 
I think I'm really interested in having audible books that have visuals that's connected to, to what I'm listening to. You know, that so would be cool. you know, I, yep. think, I think, you know, that's another step, you know, uh, you know, because right when we start getting uh, start using an iPhone or start using an iPad or start using whatever we end up using that has interactive that can do video that can do all these other things at the same time. There, there's an interactive experience that, you know, we're not getting to yet. I mean, the way we're using ebooks, in my opinion, right now is is the is a uh, is kind of like when we started with film cameras. What we did is we started shooting uh, people on stage like that's what we used a film camera for 100 years ago. And then we realized, you know, we could do this. We don't have to do it the same way we used to. You know, we could start adding, you know, we could start moving the camera around and we could shoot the scenes out of order and we could, you know, put the camera on a big stick and move it around. And, and, and before we know it, you know, we completely shattered all the rules that we had with stage. And I think that that's, you know, we're just at the very beginning of experimenting with that with, with text on these little screens. Well, and and I guess like, for example, what, what you're saying is that, that books don't necessarily have to be as linear as they have always been because, you know, you could do things like, like follow, you know, I, I, a book could be written with several different um, plot sequences where you go like follow a character in this direction and then somehow it takes responsibility for making sure that you know about this other thing happening. Right. Well, and, you know, I, sort I, of I like I've, I've talked to a lot of writers who just, who are, who um, are aghast at that idea. You know, they, they want to control, <laughs> they want to control the, uh, you know, your, the, the story experience. But I, I do think that there's a real opportunity when I'm reading, there's so many things that when I'm reading, reading something or listening, more importantly, when I'm listening to something that it would be great to just see images, stills and possibly video and possibly, you know, all these other things that are just kind of, set up to, to go along when we hit this part of the text. Uh, if I'm, there's a, uh, a book that I wish was an audible, which is called, uh, Africa biography of a continent. And I, and I always think of all the imagery that could be, you know, done while he's talking about the history of the, of, of how Africa was designed, I mean, not designed, but built or, I mean, how it, you know, it generated, it was generated through the, the tectonic plates and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I would love to see, you know, mixed with this whole process. But yeah, yeah. Well, because there's a lot of stuff that's difficult to to visualize that, you know, that in, you know, just an an audio stream is, is tough to, con- to to convey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do have a fun little Spinrite six success story for, uh, sent to us from a Jeffrey Morse who just sent email to our tech support email. And he said, Steve, I wanted to congratulate you on what, in my opinion, is one of the best data recovery utilities available. About a week ago, my mother's computer would not boot. And when attempting to run the recovery console, the system crashed with an unmountable boot volume BSOD, the infamous blue screen of death that right. so many Windows people are used to, unfortunately, or have been abused by. Um, he said some three years worth of digital camera photos from her architectural leaded glass business mm. were seemingly lost for good. So I decided to give Spinrite 6 a try. At first, it had a lot of trouble getting past the damaged area of the drive, which included the partition table. So I took it out of her system, and since mine had an external SATA card, I hooked it up and rebooted with Spinrite 6 bootable CD, which I had made. After four hours, it had found a total of 30 damaged sectors, seven of which were not completely recovered, but all the others were. But it was enough that I was able to retrieve all the pictures, 2.4 gig worth from the drive. Thanks again, Steve. I would definitely recommend Spinrite 6 to anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation. Oh, so, that's just terrifying. Well, <laughs> well yeah, it's, it's funny too, because, you know, as, I, as, I've, as Leo and I have commented, 
Drives have come down a lot in price so that Spinrite at $89 is more expensive than, you know, than, than typical drives that it's being used to recover. But of course, the, the point is, it's not the drive that you're trying to save any longer. Right. It's the data. The data has, is what's so valuable because as drives have increased in size, people have begun storing all this media on them. And the problem is, you know, the drive worked the first day and it, it worked yesterday and, and the day before. But, you know, you wake up one really bad morning and you find, oh, wait a minute. Where's I've, all I've my had data? those mornings. I've had those uh, afternoons and I've had those evenings. <laughs> you know, exactly. where, where, you know, we have a drive that just, you know, starts clunking. That's the, that's, you know, or, or just something's missing. And, yep. and, and the, 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 the alternative is, is much worse. I mean, I have sent drives into drive savers or brought them in and, you know, you're, you're looking at, uh, two, $3,000 for them Thousands. sometimes to do exactly what you're going to do. That's the first line of defense that they're going to do before they start looking at the hardware, like tearing apart your drive is seeing if they can do a software solution that's going to that's going to fix it which is exactly what this is or or not maybe exactly but but similar to 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 this process. Well, we we know from people who used to work in various data recovery companies that running Spinrite is typically the first thing they do. Right. So, is they you know, they they give that a try cuz it's I mean it's zero manpower. They get to charge x amount of dollars, right. you know, typically with a plenty of zeros on the end of it. <laughs> For for just letting a machine run over on off on the side somewhere, right. doing you know running Spinrite, doing whatever it's going to be able to do as their first thing. Maybe that's all it ever takes, and they still charge the customer you know some X with a lot of zeros on the end of it to to get the data back. So or, or to you know to hand it over to them on DVDs or you know or or whatever format. So. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, and I and I, you know, our in, in the office, uh, our saying is that no no file exists until it exists in two places. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and literally every time we shoot something, we, you know, that's all we care about. We buy and we do go through raw drives. We go through a couple terabytes a week of raw drives, and uh, but we everything's in two copies immediately. You know, and we yeah. always record. We always when we make those duplications, we never copy the copy. So when we're recording a source, like if we record a whole bunch of data. We record from the source to the copy, and then we record from the source to the second copy again. Exactly. So you never want you, always, your you don't want a errors. second generation copy. You want multiple first generation copies. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, anyway, food for thought. So now we we have uh, I, we have our uh, subject matter coming up here in yep. uh, in just a second. But before we get to that, of course, we want to uh, thank Astaro, uh, who is a, a longtime uh, sponsor here, and uh, the. Um, uh, of course, Astaro is, you know, it's if you've got a, a small or medium uh, business and you've got the network needs and you don't have the horsepower to do all of this stuff, of course, Astaro Security Gateway solves a lot of the problems that you would normally, uh, you know, have to have a lot of in-house resources to to, uh, to solve. It's got, of course, uh, superior protection from spam, viruses and hackers, as well as complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, content filtering and an industrial strength firewall, which is is key to the whole operation. All of this is, of course, in a single, easy-to-use, uh, high-performance uh, application. Now, you can contact Astaro uh, at www.astaro.com or, uh, or call them, uh, 1-8-877-4-ASTARO, uh, uh, to schedule a free trial of Astaro Security Gateway Appliance for your business. And, by the way, they just released a, a new product called the, the Astaro Command Center. This is uh, free for users of the Astaro Security Gateway uh, they it, this lets administrators manage and control multiple gateways from a single dashboard and includes 
a world map. You can visually locate and control gateways no matter where they are located. Monitoring capabilities to show you at a glance the threat levels and resource usage of all the gateways in the network. And, uh, and of course, it can coordinate and uh, manage remote gateway maintenance, sh- uh, startup, and shutdown. So uh, if you want to find out more information about that, of course, go to www.astaro.com. And uh, Steve, what do we have coming up here now? Okay, so... This follows on from a, a really good presentation at the Black Hat Conference. I want to give Moxie Marlin Spike the, the props that he deserves for, for sort of pulling this together. Um, I think this is the sort of thing that arises when a hacker, you know, spends some time thinking about how can we get around uh, other, you know, perfectly working security systems. Years before, so this isn't back, this isn't this isn't really. We're not talking about a bug here. What we're really talking about is just a, a feature problem. Ex- well, exactly. We're, we're, we're well. We're talking about a a fundamentally a, a a a fundamentally broken model. That is a a model that we're all using every day, which you could argue should have should never be used the way it is being used. So. Well, that's, pretty much the case. that's pretty much the case for the entire web, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the well, HTML was never, it was never designed to do what it's doing now. It's certainly the case that I, I, I absolutely agree with you that, that HTML, even the acronym, is something that should never be exposed to end users. I mean, the idea that, you, that there's HTTP colon slash slash. I mean, you know, that, that's about as hostile to my mother as anything could be. Yet, right. you know. She has to look at that. She has to deal with that. That that's that's unfortunately, you know, inserted itself into her life and in the lives of all these other people who, you know, who've been literally, I mean, forced onto the internet because that's where everything is now. Well, that's more how we, we didn't have to originally. I mean, I remember I used to be part of Prodigy and uh, many many moons ago, and then there was AOL, and all of these were safe little areas for home users to you know kind of go into that but as of course as the web blew up it just kind of we you know a lot of us left that it's right like well in fact in fact mom's email account she was also an early aol user although i don't know whether it was, whether it was deliberate or not but she calls it sometimes awol um because mm-hmm. you know she's just she's just not happy with it right uh, um okay so so earlier in this episode we were talking about this null character vulnerability that now which is clearly a defect in the way ssl certificates are being parsed what i want to talk about today though is not that it is if everything else is working correctly how can a bad guy still break into ssl connections essentially or effectively um while not actually doing so the, but but with the same consequence. Right. So, um, what what Moxie noted at the beginning of his speech, I think, was was really astute, and that is that most people don't directly deal with SSL connections. That is, that is, they're not putting in typically HTTP col HTTPS colon slash slash www dot something or something. Typically, people will, for example, put just put in paypal.com. Right. And in fact, some of our web browsers, like Firefox, 
are becoming smart enough that if PayPal.com doesn't resolve to an IP, the browser itself will try www.paypal.com because that's probably, you know, going to be yeah. valid if PayPal.com isn't. But in any event, what we end up with then is up in the URL bar, then, you know, we see the final URL, HTTP colon slash slash www.paypal.com, and then a whole bunch of gobbledygook that, you know, be, unfortunately, again, sort of due to the evolution of the browser needing to hold on to individual users and their sessions, oftentimes it's just impenetrable random looking numbers and symbols and stuff in the URL. Right. Again, not something that you would ever really want to expose users to, but there it is. Right. So um, one of the things that we've talked about is that the, the way a browser and a remote web server work is, is in a query response model where the browser asks for a page and the, the, in, in a connection to the remote server, the remote server provides that page, which, and that, which the browser then parses. And more often than not, I mean, virtually now, all the time, it's not pure text. There's going to be window dressing, ads, uh, menus, buttons, all kinds of stuff. So those all require um, sub, uh, follow-on accesses back to that server or maybe other servers in order to fully assemble all the pieces of that finished page. So when login happens, when you're, when you're at a site that wants you to log in, some sites will, will bring you to a secure page where you're filling in the form. Like, you know, username and password. And this is, and so and this is where, you know, you're, you're typically going to look for the little, the little lock. Exactly. Right. Um, but um, as our listeners know, it's not necessary for sites to give you a secure page to fill in the form because that's not the part that needs the security. That is, when that, when that page comes to you, it's got a blank form on it. You, you fill in the fields, and it's when you click the button that that's, that's the event that requires the secure connection because sort of the the way we've bootstrapped sending information back to a web server, which was really not part of the original model. Um, you know, the idea was you would click links and you just get these pages and you'd follow right. these links around and you'd be looking at pages. Of course, we needed suddenly, you know, much more interaction. We wanted to be able to be posting information, posting into, you know, forums and blogs and, 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 and leaving comments behind and so forth. So, the way this has been done is by by encapsulating that information in a query that is sort of in a pseudo request to the server, which it understands as the receipt of information. So the key that Moxie noted is that that users generally don't worry about the switching in and out of of, of an SSL connection. We just assume that if, if I'm at a PayPal login, and in fact, the PayPal login screen is not secure. Well, the, on the Windows, we've already established that, right? Exactly. Whatever. Exactly. In, you know, it, it's the button you click that you assume is going to do the, uh, the secure transfer. But you, right. we've, 
we've sort of given responsibility for that to the website. We assume that the page it's, it's given us will have an HTTPS URL on the submit button for the form, which will bring up a secure connection in order to carry our data, which we don't want anybody to be able to, to um, um, be, be, mon- be monitoring surreptitiously in the background. So it'll bring up a, an SSL tunnel to encrypt it so that no one who is either passively listening or has may have inserted themselves into our, our communication is able to to determine you know what data we're submitting. But of course, that's that's the, that's depending on where they insert themselves, right? Well, so yes, the so so we understand what this model is. So there is a means for inserting oneself into and pretty much any Ethernet network, which we've also discussed in the past, and I'll, I'll sort of go through a quick review to sort of reestablish that. There's, there's something called an ARP spoofing attack. The way, the way packets are, are routed on an Ethernet network, that is a network that is inherently going to be a LAN, so it's within a local area network. So it's within your home or in your office or in a hotel or even in an open wireless environment or, for that matter, in an, in, in, in an encrypted wireless environment. The way packets are routed is that, that the various interfaces, the Ethernet interfaces, all have a unique IP address. They also have a unique MAC address, which is sort of the the the, the physical hardware identity identity of that card, that interface on the Ethernet. But we're we're routing so-called IP traffic, Internet Protocol traffic, which uses IP addresses. It does not use MAC addresses. So what's been created is a a table the the mac address table which associates an ip address with its corresponding mac address so that when so it's so it's saying that i've i've got a bunch of ips and these are all connected to this mac, to this computer exactly so when it well, says that this is secure it's assuming that every one of those ip addresses is connected to that computer once it's established that well yeah it, it it's a it's a it's a mapping between the ip addresses Sort of in the environment, right. and um, and the physical interfaces that have those IP addresses assigned. So it's basically tying those IPs down to the to the hardware. To exactly, they to could be their, anywhere. Those IPs could be anywhere. They could be on any server, and it's saying all of these IPs belong to this computer. Well, it's it's saying that within the network, this IP is 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 being handled by this particular MAC address. Which is an interface on, you know, like it might be on the gateway, it might be on a server, it might be on the user's machine. Right. So, okay, so it is absolutely possible and not even difficult for a third party to, to, that has access to the Ethernet to insert themselves into. A, into the communication link between, for example, 
another user, and the gateway. You, um, this ARP traffic is well understood. ARP spoofing uh, has there, there's plenty of tools for doing this. Essentially, you're able to tell the gateway that that your MAC address has an IP that it doesn't. That is, there's no prevention for that in the protocol. You're able to to insert your own entry into the gateway's ARP table so that when the gateway wants to send a packet to user A, it actually goes to user B. And so it, it, so there, there's no prevention for, for inserting ARP packets into these ARP tables. And similarly... And this isn't really, it, this is not a hardware problem. This is really a an issue of uh, of dealing with just the absolute what what has to happen with the browser to go back and forth. Well, actually it's even lower than that. It's this was designed with no security in mind. This was designed, you know, Bob Metcalf who did ethernet at the Palo Alto Research Center. Um this was his original art his original architecture for the way the ethernet works. And so this was this all predates any issue, any concern with security. So, so any user on an Ethernet can arrange to to insert their MAC address into the ARP tables of any other machines on the Ethernet, and it, and, and what that means is that gateway traffic coming into the network bound for the proper user can instead be can instead be sent to the ethernet interface of somebody malicious and similar and when when they receive that they can then knowing knowing which user they have intercepted they can then forward that packet traffic to that user so that the user sees no interruption sees nothing wrong except that their traffic has has bounced once through somebody else on that ethernet before getting to them i mean classic man in the middle that by by inserting these arp table entries a malicious person has has inserted themselves into the conversation and by doing the same thing to that user's arp table that is by replacing the mac address of the gateway with their own MAC address, when that when the valid user sends traffic back to the IP of the gateway, their table, their ARP table, believes that it's the wrong MAC address. So instead, it addresses the Ethernet packet back to the hostile man in the middle, who then forwards it onto the gateway. So that allows a anybody who's on the same Ethernet essentially to easily insert themselves into the conversation now this has been this is a well-known long-standing problem um we have we we've developed actually on this podcast a defense against this um on wireless networks using multiple routers sort of a, a y configuration of routers because arp traffic well, because ARP spoofing is a is a serious danger, and um, ARP traffic is inherently constrained within a single LAN. And when you have routers 
Routers are essentially routing between lands. That's what a router is doing. It's routing packets between lands. So they end up blocking ARP packets and they provide virtually unbypassable protection against this kind of ARP spoofing. But within a network, within an Ethernet, there's no protection for that. So in any open Wi-Fi scenario, you know, you go to Starbucks, uh, you go to you know any open hotspot where you've got so-called free Wi-Fi access, everybody is on the same LAN. Somebody could be sitting with a laptop that and 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 editing people's ARP tables in order to intercept their communications. Well, the good news is. SSL, the secure sockets layer, prevents them from intercepting encrypted communications. That is, because there is, there's no way for them, even, even though they're able to listen to the communication as it goes by, the, but the, the way the SSL handshake is structured, even, the, even if they're there in the middle, they are unable to 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 acquire the the key, the secret key, the SSL um, session key, which is negotiated by the the valid client and the valid server at the remote end. So SSL itself is is safe and and prevents this kind of man in the middle attack from working. But Moxie's point that users essentially have the responsibility of switching in and out of SSL handled for them by the remote server is is how this man in the middle attack gets leveraged and and here's how it happens so so you're in a you're in, a, in an open Wi-Fi hotspot and you know using your machine uh, minding your own business you Decide you want to log in to PayPal. So you, and this is not using any fraudulent certificates. This is, I mean, you know, log into any secure site. Doesn't matter what it is with one, with all the security systems working the way they should. We're not exploiting any defects here. So you you go to www.paypal.com. Well, that's a non-secure page. HTTP colon slash slash www.paypal.com. Which you know you may or may not pay attention to, but over on the left it says, "Okay, log in securely," and the page that you received has a submit button, which we just assume is an HTTPS URL. But the bad guy in the middle who's filtering your traffic, who's like, who's arranged to receive all the packets you send out and receive all the packets coming back in before you get them. He's got some software running on there, which simply strips out the HTTPS that strips out the S from the URLs that it finds embedded in the pages you received. So what you receive from what you see when you are looking at this PayPal login screen is the PayPal login screen, just the way the PayPal server sent it to you. But 
web pages don't have any sort of signatures on them. They don't have a CRC or an MD5 checksum or an SHA1. The, the web pages themselves have no security on them. So we're assuming that the web page we've received has not been modified, but there's nothing to prevent its modification. So that's one serious problem with the web browser model. What this means is that this man in the middle can remove the, the S from the HTTPS, of, which is unseen because it's part of the web page and it's just there sort of hiding behind the button. So you now put in your username and your password and you click the login button. This, what you, what you have sent is, is again intercepted by this man in the middle. The man in the middle has retained this little software, which does exist. It's been written. Yeah, this software remembers that it removed the S from this particular URL. So when it sees the user requesting that URL, it adds the S back in and forwards the request. But what it received from the user is a non-SSL query because the S was removed from the submit button. So the man in the middle has access to the secure, the, the, the so-called secured data and, and then sent the, the uh, forwarded the request onto the server over a regular SSL connection. So the remote end, that is the PayPal server, sees what it expects, which is a secure submission of the login data and accepts it, except that it was not secure for the first leg of its trip between the valid user and the spy who's sitting in the middle. They just captured your you, what you wish was secured PayPal information. Steve, Steve the, the, so the, is there a point where you can see this? So it's HT, you, you're, you're not seeing the HTTPS? So it's that, yes. in that first area where you're logging in. If you look up and you see and you don't see the HTTPS, that you could be being spoofed. Well, and, and so that's the key. Many sites do not give you an HTTPS form. They give you an HTTPS query. That is so, so normally, like literally www.paypal.com, is, it, the, 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 the page you look at is not already secure typically. Now, it's absolutely the case that an astute user could detect that they did not receive a secure page in return. But first of all, by that time, it's too late. The person in the middle got their login information before they noticed that the page that they received was not secure. Because if you make a secure query, you're going to have a secure um, like login confirmation page come back. So an astute user could say, wait a minute, I, I didn't just get, get switched into secure mode. But Moxie also came up with a solution for that, which is the fave icon that we're so used to seeing, you know, the little Google G or the, you know, the, the basically the website's logo is now often carried in front of the URL. Well, there's nothing to prevent this person who's intercepted the communication from replacing it 
with a little padlock, a little golden padlock. So even though it's not the this the same thing that the site actually prevents, we're used to seeing this little padlock and and equating it with security. So this is this is not something that's going to fool somebody who is hyper vigilant, who is like you know really looking at everything. On the other hand, most people aren't. I know my mom isn't. Right. You know, she's logging in. She's just sort of chortling along. You know, assuming that the other side is taking responsibility for for the security of anything it asks her. After all, they're the ones asking her to log on. So, you know, they better make sure that that's a secure process. The problem is that because of this this fundamentally broken browser model, the the idea that we're we're leveraging technology that was never designed for this. This was sort of all a kludge that the people came up with. It's like, wait a minute, how do we, you know, allow secure logons? Oh, I know. We'll just, you know, we'll make this submit button be HTTPS and that will set up an SSL connection. And it's like, well, yes, if the page you receive is valid, if it's got the HTTPS in the submit button, that'll work. But if if there's any scenario that allows that page to be edited on the way to you, then the page you get won't be won't have the secure submission. And there's no and way for you to know, know that for sure because the thing is is that no one requires it. So that there's it, a lot of these sites that it's not and it's it's an ease of use thing. I imagine you know of of not having you go through it. Why would they not go through this first process of of making sure that it's HTTPS? Right and right and in fact, it's there's two things there. First of all, the the bad guy in the middle is is still using HTTPS to the remote end. So the server sees the secure the secure side that it's expecting to because the bad guy has has restored the URLs as they're going back out to the server, even though he's stripped those as they were coming in to the innocent user. So 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 the server sees that. What you really need is something we do not have, which is you need the browser, the user's browser, to insist that any any pages coming in be secure. And there is no provision for that in our current model. That is, the server can can insist that it that it be getting secure connections, but the user's browser inherently the model is takes whatever it's given and and there's no provision for the browser insisting that that https is used universally with paypal for example and and there's a there's some reason for this historically back in the old days back when we had 386 processors um the establishment of an ssl connection was costly in terms of computer resources. It does involve a public key crypto um, process, which is probably one of the most expensive in terms of processing power things to do. So, so for that reason, in general, connections to servers are not secure or secured unless there's a specific need for them to be so. And that's generally, for example, just during 
the logon process. For example, we've talked about, for example, uh, Google Mail. If you go, to, if you just go to gmail.com, you get an unsecure page. You log in and you are briefly secured, but but Gmail drops you back to a non-secured connection. If you manually go https colon slash slash gmail.com, then, then Google will respect the fact that you, you asked for a secure starting of the dialogue. And so it'll leave you that way. And so your whole Gmail uh, dialogue with Google is secure. But, but up until recently, there was no option. Now they have an option where you can configure Gmail to say, to say I always want a secure connection whenever I'm logged on to Google. But that's only happened in the last couple of months. Is this the same so, for, for, for PayPal? So I mean, um, you can you can force a secure connection. Um, you know, I haven't pl- tried with PayPal, but certainly it's not the case for like everybody else. I mean, like right. the normal normally what happens is that the way the programmers of the web server and website set things up was they'll 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 do a secure connection only when necessary, only when they expect something that is dangerous to be happening. Um, and then they will move you back into a non-secure connection because traditionally it was very expensive to maintain um, secure connections. Well, is it, and is it is it is it expensive on both ends for both the user and the server? Well, so and exa- so exactly, and that's the point. Is it's, it's the concentration effect right. that that you know individual end users could all be negotiating these SSL connections with no problem, but a server that's handling, you know, tens of thousands of connections per second, suddenly it ends up just collapsing. So the good news is servers today, processors today are far faster. This is why there are so-called SSL accelerators. You, you, you can buy SSL hardware that does this very expensive public key handshake um, in hardware to offload the burden from the server software because it's traditionally been so expensive. Right. So, you know, the anyway, so the, the point I really wanted to make was I wanted to sort of take our listeners through this very feasible scenario. Um, Moxie, whose name is really not Moxie Marlin Spike, um, s- did create a tool which does this, which exists on the Internet. He he set it up in a Wi-Fi hotspot, intercepted ARP packets, and performed ARP spoofing to insert himself into connections. During a 24-hour period of time, he intercepted uh, 114 logins to Yahoo.com, 50 logins to Gmail, 42 to Ticketmaster.com, 14 to rapidshare.com, 13 to Hotmail, 9 to PayPal, 9 to LinkedIn, 3 to Facebook. And so in that 24-hour period, he captured 117 separate um, email account logons, 16 credit card numbers, along with all the of, of the subsidiary, you know, expiration date and 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 security code and everything, users' names, passwords, everything required to use those cards, nine secure PayPal logins, and over 300 other miscellaneous secure logins using this tool. 
Wow. So this is this is I mean, this is really a catastrophic problem. Well, yes. I mean, this this is a this is why the browser model. I mean, this notion of using a web browser as if it were a secure interface is fundamentally broken. Well, is, I mean, is, it's, the, is, is the is the answer net applications like, for instance, when I'm on my is it more secure, for instance, if I'm on my iPhone and I'm using uh, the Bank of America application that they have that that is going to connect me to Bank of America. Is that more secure as a, as a standalone application than going to Bank of America's website? I would say yes. I would say that, I mean, given that it's been implemented correctly, the fact that it's the fact that it's that it's not using the the traditional browser model, but it will certainly be like it's a standalone application, which will have brought up its own secure encrypted connection. And then it'll everything it's doing is through that. The, you know, the, the one of the problems is the browser is so ubiquitous. There's all kinds of ways to hook into it and and monitor what it's doing. I mean, you know, we see like toolbars being installed w- that we really didn't ask for. Well, you know, these toolbars or add-ons have their hooks deep into the browser. So this this idea that we're treating a web browser as if it is trustable is fundamentally. I mean, it is intrinsically broken it's 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 just you know yeah. <laughs> it's is, is just there, i mean really is there a solution wrong. is there something that, that that can be done on either end to make sure that this isn't happening the only thing that i can think i mean as i and as i've been thinking about this ever since you know it became so clear how how as you said you know how bad this is is, is as i was saying if if we had the ability on the, to tell the browser never ever ever allow non-secured connections to PayPal. That is, I do not want to receive a page from PayPal not that is not over SSL because the key to this particular vulnerability is that a non-secure page, e- even one, one non-secure page that was edited could then, could then edit everything else about our interaction with PayPal. Now, you would need PayPal that is the PayPal server to agree to always have a secure connection. There are some servers that will not accept a, you know, where you can't just arbitrarily use HTTPS on any random page of theirs. They'll, they'll like, they'll either say, you know, this page doesn't exist or they may bounce you back to HTTPS. You know, many of these systems are, are trying to minimize the, their burden so they're moving users back to HTTP when they don't have to be over a secure connection because it is still more expensive than not to create these SSL connections. So that would have to change. And our browser, we'd have to be able to instruct our browser, you know, these, the following sites, PayPal, B of A, Facebook, uh, Amazon, you know, and on and on and on, sort of a list of, of like golden sites where we absolutely insist on the pages being secure or what would really be good is if we just did away with non-secure right. browser connections or, just, or have you tell have it tell you every single time like assume you know force an https and assume that that's what i'm going to get and if i don't get that tell me tell exactly me you know give me you know heads up I, I can't i can't go there securely yeah and that's that would be completely unworkable today <laughs> 
But right. you know, but that's something has to happen. Now, is that is that specifically from a processing point of view? It would just be unworkable to have millions of people asking for a secure connection all the time. You know, it's a good question. I really don't know what the you know, like out um, like um, quantitatively, what it would mean to Amazon or Facebook or Twitter, for example. You know, any of these sites, if all of their connections were SSL. Um, right. I, I don't really have a, a quantitative sense for it. I know that it's a greater burden, but um, I don't, the, 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 well, okay, several things have happened. HTTP 1.0 was the original spec. And in that spec, a browser always dropped its connection when it was done. So it would make a request, it would receive the result over that request and then disconnect. And then for the, everything else, it would make it would create a new connection, make the request, and then disconnect. One of the changes in HTTP 1, because it was recognized that this was dumb, you know, if we had a lot of transactions back and forth as we walked around interacting with a single site, why keep bringing up and dropping these connections? So the HTTP 1 model, um, where the, and, and, and that's a little agreement in the in in the query that the browser makes, it says I'm using you know what protocol version, and so all browsers now support HTTP 1.1. It'll it'll say this is what I'm using, and the, in one of the headers they'll say I'm willing to keep this alive. So it's a, it, it's a keep alive header. So the server says, oh, whew, thank you. And so the spec says a, that a client, a web client, can and will have a maximum of two connections at a time to the remote server and it's able to reuse them. So the the client is able to send a stream of queries down those connections and receive a, a disambiguated stream of responses back. So in that model, it's much less expensive to establish two connections which are SSL because now they're persistent. Now, you know, while you're on that site roaming around their pages, there's no more negotiating being done. Um, so, it, well, and in fact, because of this expense, some of the newer some of the newer versions of the SSL protocol allows a reuse of the credentials which have been negotiated. We we did a podcast a few months back where we where we dissected SSL in detail. And one of the cool aspects of it is if both ends agree and both ends still have their the the credentials that were painfully and cost expensively negotiated recently, they both still have them in their caches. Then they 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 at with both of their endpoints in agreement, they're able to bring up a connection without going through the public key crypto overhead again. So there's been so much progress. That I I'm I'm skeptical that it would really be that big a problem if servers required um, that you know that kind of operation. You know I I wrote um, GRC's e-commerce system from scratch because I'd never written one before, and I incorporated these kinds of things. You you know the 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 pay the first page you get where you're looking at a form must be you know it is secure. And the server enforces that security. So, so you know, it absolutely insists that anytime you're in the e-commerce system, you're going to be secure. But, but even doing that, 
still, I mean, nothing prevents this this exploit from being functional because the bad guy in the middle would be able to establish a secure connection just like he would to any other website. So the 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 web server at the other end is fooled. It's it and it takes it, the only indication is that diligence on the part of the user to notice. Wait a minute, um, I don't see security here. Well, but, but still, but even if you're diligent, it's already too late when you find, figure it out. Precisely because it's not until you get the result from submitting that insecure data that it's it's like oh crap. Wait a minute. Right. And at that point, it's too late. The bad guy's got your credit card information. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and there's not really any strong solution other than changing the form, changing the way this all works. Yes. I mean, that's why. No, like, there's nothing someone could do tomorrow. There's nothing I can do tomorrow. There's, you know, that it is simply. Now, is this, once again, a, a, it's either fixing that or more of these net applications. I mean, I know one one thing that's interesting with my iPhone is, is that I prefer, I'm finding, you know, I I came to the conc- I realized earlier this week that I had 360 applications somehow I had accumulated <laughs> on my iPhone and and uh but you I, and Leo I, you know, I just people send me stuff and I go oh yeah 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 I'll buy it you know and, and uh, it's not yeah. nine cents you know it's less than a coffee so the so the but the, but what I end up with is all these applications and I and I'd rather be checking yes. Mint uh Bank of America and it's not for me it hasn't been a secure issue until now um but it's been mostly a it's just more convenient. The interface is designed for the way that I want to interact. It's designed for what I want to do, and it's it's faster. But now I think that I'm going to be using my Bank of America iPhone app uh, more often than ever going up to my website. Yeah, I think that's that's. I mean, I think that's an extremely good point. You know, the 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 downside of the browser being non-trustworthy is that that it might force a, a proliferation of individual applications and you know none of us want i hate installing applications on my machine because they're just you know it's one more opportunity for something to go wrong so you know library collisions and my you know my ad my ad remove list ends up being so long it takes like half an hour to populate it when i bring up ad remove programs because there's just so much junk on my machine i i love the idea of being able to use a web browser as a sort of a universal generic interface to web stuff. And what we've got to do is fix this fundamentally broken model of the, of web browser security. It is just, it is not correct right now. It is not something we can trust. Right. And, and cause I mean, the, it, if this doesn't get fixed quickly, it gets to a point where no one can trust e-commerce on the web as if people and when people, start to exploit this this is going to become something that takes away that basic trust it's like walking into a bank and not knowing who you can talk to exactly that is uh really frightening so (laughs) when you're using grc and my e-commerce system make sure you've got a secure page because i do bring up security prior to ever asking for any information so it's easy to verify that you know you're getting a secure page if you got if if you're getting a secure page then the buttons on that secure page cannot have been modified because nobody is able to intercept that. So if you're using an e-commerce system like mine, where the form you're filling out is SSL secured, then everything that follows on from that is also going to be wrapped in the SSL security because all of the submit buttons will still be secure because no one could have changed them. The vulnerability is using a site 
that doesn't put you into SSL first, because then the buttons that you're using to submit could have been had could have had that edited out, and that's the problem. There's no. I mean, when I go when when I log into Bank of America, actually, I have two logins. You know, I have my initial login and a second login. Is that part of managing that, or does that matter? Like the problem is, yeah, the, it's already the, it's already cut its way through. It doesn't matter at that point. Exactly. Right. If if the if the first thing you do is on a page, if you're ever being asked for information on a page that isn't already SSL, that's the vulnerability. So any form you get. When you're first being asked to log in, if you insist that that is SSL encrypted, then you know it could not have been edited to ha- for, for this kind of exploit. Unfortunately, so many sites don't do that. We're, just, uh, we're taking for granted that the button will be SSL when we click on it. Is the, is the only answer, I mean, in the short term for a user is to try to force an HTTPS connection? So yes. at least go up there when you're going to Amazon or when you're going to uh, Gmail or going whatever it is, at least try to type that in rather than just HTTP. Yes. And in fact, in fact, so so Moxie's point was that that we generally allow the web server at the other end to to decide when we're going to get security and when we're not. And so we 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 trust them. So most people really aren't watching whether they're secure or not. Um, and, and the problem, of course, is that you, unless you are vigilant, then it's easy to fill out a form assuming that you know, the submission of it will be secure. So exactly as you say, if you, if you verify, what you want to do is make sure that the form you're filling out, it came to you over SSL, meaning that the URL you're looking at up in the, up in the browser's bar is HTTPS and the browser's real security in indicator, not a little like padlock in the URL, which, you know, Moxie cleverly figured he could use the fave icon in order to change that. But you want the actual padlock to say, yep, yeah, this is a secure page that you, where you're putting your information in. Before you then start typing. Before you, exactly, before you start typing. That, but yeah. that's a lot to ask from my mother. Well, and that's the whole thing. I mean, like anything else, a lot of this, a lot of the, these types of, of processes is kind of like a, you know, the the cheetah isn't looking for the fastest wildebeest; it's looking for the slowest one. <laughs> you know, so, that's a very good point. You know, so that's that's who they're that's who these guys are usually catching. It's not us, you know, in this show, uh, yep. unless we, you know, it's it's our it's our family that isn't paying as much attention. Yep. So you know, the the takeaway for our listeners and everybody else is make sure the form you're filling out is secure. If it's not, exactly as you said, Alex, try to make it secure. Try to go up and put an S in that HTTP to see if you can get it to be secure. Because if not, you don't know where your data is going when you click the submit button. Wow. That's uh, both something that is important for all of us to hear, but uh, something that I don't know if I really wanted to hear. I kinda... It's sobering. Yeah. yeah it's very sobering. It I really know. is. It's going to change the way I, uh, I mean, because a lot of times I'll tell people, you know, people ask if you're going to use a credit card online. And I always think that the credit card is more secure. Up until today, I thought the, it's more secure for me to give it to you online than to call somebody. You know, I always worry about, you know, I, I always want, you know, you, you talk on the phone. I don't know what that person's writing it down on. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's going on in the phone line. So I always thought that online was actually more secure than even giving, it, giving my credit oh. card to a, to a waiter 
and, uh, exactly. and paying paying for a meal. Exactly. You know, there there goes my credit card. Wandered off with someone who you know doesn't speak English very well. So it's like, okay, well, I hope this works. I mean, could, could, could you get into a situation where you had an agreement? I mean, this is kind of where maybe Google checkout or something like that, where I get into a situation where I put that in once and once I'm in that and that goes through all the security stuff. And then I'm not actually putting my information in again, um, you know, to when I go to different websites, you know, when I'm going to different e-commerce websites. Well, the problem is that whatever, whatever it is the user is doing to, get, to, to authenticate to, to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one, 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 Good thing is that we've also talked about any kind of one-time password system. You know, for example, PayPal has these the, the one-time like 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 the little e-ink credit cards where where you log in and you are asked for a a, a six-digit code. Only you know the six-digit code because um um because uh, you are in physical possession of the card. Well, what that what that does is it means that your your login credentials cannot be used later, but they can be used then. And so there, there we, we talked about this last week. There actually have been attacks now, and I'm going to cover this in more detail in in, in a future Security Now episode because I've tracked down the Trojan that's able to do this. There are there there is the ability now to ride on your login session and do other banking work behind your back without you knowing it. So that even defeats the one-time password approach because bad stuff can happen while you're doing good stuff in the foreground without your knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, and, and so, but, but, but to answer your broader question, whatever you do to authenticate, right. you know, you may not be, if you don't have to give your credit card information again because the website stored it, well, that's good. But if you just log in with your username and password, then somebody else can too. So there's nothing to prevent you, you know, to, to, to prevent somebody else from impersonating whatever it was you just did that authenticated yourself. If, if assuming that, that you, you do that again to, uh, to re-authenticate yourself, somebody else who captured that information can, can do the same thing. And, and, you know, we saw from those statistics that Moxie's little spy that ran for 24 hours sucked in 16 credit card numbers with all of the accoutrements, you know, everything necessary to, to charge against the you know, people's credit cards. It's really frightening. Terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm definitely going to be, I, I know that the rest of the week I'm going to be forcing HTTPS uh, connections and just seeing where I, what I can trust. I mean, yeah, it it'll be interesting like, to just do the experiment. Right. It seems like for us, at least in the know now, thanks to you, uh, that, there, that, you know, what there is to do is to start, pressuring uh you know the for me it's like amazon and the, the handful you know if, if it's if i can't get an http tbs is to make requests of that and to let people know that we're not we're not gonna i, I think as this news gets out i think you end up with people not using sites i think it, it seems like a natural reaction these sites are going to have to allow at least allow one if not force it allow an https so for those of us who know what we're doing we can force that issue well, and, and to deal with the problem of vigilance, I mean, that's really, I mean, it comes down to the user being responsible at this point. And I'd really like to offload that to the browser, you know, so that if there was a way, like, for example, imagine a Firefox add-in where, which, you know, if it was possible for sites that we use a lot, like PayPal, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth, if it's possible for them to accept HTTPS for everything, 
then we want to tell the browser, good, make you know every URL I submit to this site, please add the S for me. You know, make it secure so I don't have to worry about it constantly anymore any longer. Because it's so easy. You know, I mean you're distracted, you're in a hurry, and you know, all it takes is, you know, one situation where you slip up and, you know, your information has escaped. Wow. Yeah. And and it's once it's out of the bag. <laughs> It's out of, and, and for a lot of us, you know, if, if people aren't doing, if they're using their, the same password too many times or using all those other things, it can it cannot just be your credit card or your access to Amazon. You know, for a lot of people who get lazy and don't want to try to remember a, a long string or don't want to try to remember new new uh, uh, um, passwords, uh, this could be opening up everything. Well, and it allows it allows you to be impersonated. So imagine, for example, that as social networking grows. You know, many people are putting a whole bunch of importance behind, you know, their profile on Facebook. So this allows somebody else to log in as you and impersonate you in a social networking environment and do Lord knows what kind of damage. Right. Yeah. When I try to do uh, Amazon.com, it, it, I get the this connection is untrusted <laughs> yep. you know, when I do the HTTPS. So it's uh, frightening. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I think I can thank you. <laughs> Sorry to ruin your day, Alex. Thank you for the sobering information. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I was going to buy a bunch of stuff. Now I, I think I'm just going to. Yeah, it's possible to be safe. Like I said, you know, like if you, you know, my e-commerce site insists on giving you a secure form. Right. And so, but, but, you know, so if the user sees that the form they're filling out is secure, you're safe. Otherwise, you don't know what. You know, you don't know where that page came from because you own it's only SSL that, that protects you against spoofing. So somebody who inserts themselves in the middle anywhere, not maybe not even just, you know, in your own Wi-Fi cafe, but, you know, in, 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 a, in a hotel scenario or, you know, maybe somebody spliced into the line, you know, downstream of the ISP. I mean, the, 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 the potential for exploitation is huge. So, uh, if, if, if can people find more information at grc.com? Are you do you have anything up there or? Um, uh, well, we, we we have we have the security now. Um, grc.com slash security now uh -huh. is where this podcast is. Um, we, we we do a 16 kilobit version, as Leo says, for the bandwidth impaired. Right. Uh, I also have Elaine doing transcripts every week. Our illustrious transcriber. So she will be transcribing this with, sh you know, shaking hands. Yeah, exactly. We'll get this posted. And um, next week is going to be our Q&A episode. So I want to encourage people, by all means, even responding to this podcast, uh, specifically if they're interested, to send their feedback to grc.com slash feedback. Um, I'll read their mail and we'll address their questions next week. Thanks, Steve. Steve Gibson, Steve Gibson once again, drc.com, and uh, thank you all for watching and supporting. Thanks, Alex. Security now.